Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Nick Romito, CEO and co-founder of Fifth Wall portfolio company, VTS. Together, we unpack the last five years of the burgeoning prop tech sector, sharing Nick's perspective as an entrepreneur at the helm of a rapidly growing startup, and mine as a venture capital investor and co-founder of Fifth Wall. Enjoy the conversation. All right, well, Nick, thank you so much for, for joining. I'm really excited to chat with you. Thanks for having me. And where are you videoing in from today? I am videoing in from uh, my, my beach house in New Jersey, about an hour and 20 minutes south of, of New York City. I'd love to just hear like your experience in starting um, VTS, because I think you are seen by so many people as this is the standard bearer of what prop tech is. It's- yeah, well, thank you for that. You know, we, I think we're, when your head's down like we are, you don't really pick your head up all that often to, to think about that. Um, but it's funny, even when I hear the word prop tech or CRE tech, you know, the, these things were not terms that we used when we started this company because they didn't exist, right? It was like myself, my co-founder, Ryan, um, you know, neither of us had computer science degrees or knew really much about technology. We just knew the way we were doing things was totally broken. So I was on the asset management uh, side and, and leasing side of the business at the, when we had the idea. He was on the leasing side at JLL and we're both having dinner in his backyard and said, you know, what we're doing is so inefficient. And we looked at our friends in other markets, whether it's in FinTech or their hedge fund managers, they had so much data and they had so much software to do their business. And we're like, this is crazy. The fact that every part of our job is done offline manually. There's really no kind of data driven decision making. There's no way to just automate what we did. And you spend all this time in a business where literally every minute counts, right? You don't really get paid a salary. It's not how you make your money. And we spend all this time just trying to do non-revenue generating things. It blew our mind. And so, um, what, what year is this, by the way? This is probably tw- uh, 2009, 2010. So okay. you know, the market was obviously in a very bad place. Um, and we thought that was the best time maybe ever for us to think about a way to do all this stuff a little bit differently. Um, you know, there's like that saying where, you know, sometimes a storm either just, you know, destroys a home or creates a path. We felt like this was clearly creating an opportunity to, to use that downtime, if you will, to make people think about things, um, you know, in a way that they probably weren't used to, which was how about using basic information to make a decision or how about not using Excel to do everything and do it on your phone. Right. Um, and and so, I'm curious yeah. back then, when you, when you were having that conversation, like what were your intuitions as to why the real estate industry was such a tech laggard? Not today. I'm sure it's changed today, but like why then did you think it was the case? Yeah. yeah. So we, we realized pretty quickly. Um, again, we knew nothing about technology. We just knew, we knew so much about the problem that we felt like we could bridge the gap and hire, a, we, we can find a co-founder who could be, who could take the things in our head and make it come to life. And we would learn the hard way, which we did, right? In terms of, you know, now I feel like I could, I could probably take a CS class and pass. But so I think the rationale that we came up with was two things. Uh, one, we very much live in a market where if it's not broke, why fix it, right? That is the mindset of people. 
And when you combine that with the fact that people make a lot of money, right? So if you're making a lot of money, you're not really super motivated to change anything, right? And so those two things combined kind of compound into a, a hard market to break into. And then on the technology side, you look at the really successful companies, there are only really a couple at that time, and they're big legacy 25, 30 year old businesses that had no kind of open architecture, right? Like the, the word API more or less didn't exist back then, right? There was, they weren't incentivized or excited to give another tech company data in their system to add value to an end user. So you had people who really didn't want to change all that much because they were, they were fine in, the way, in their own ways. They're making a lot of money. And then you had only a couple big legacy people or, or companies who didn't want to share information or, or give owners their own information. So I think a big part of our story is, is how our kind of partnership with our customers really helped us convince the other older legacy companies to open up their data, right? And, and, and by the way, it wasn't even their data. It was the customer's data. So we had customers more or less picketing outside of these older companies saying, listen, I use your technology. It's largely desktop software. I need you to give this other company my data because what they're going to do with it is way more valuable than what you do with it. And so, you know, we, we couldn't do that, right? The customers had to do it. And so, you know, a combination of that and us building software that really added value to the business user because to, your, to that same question, most of the software really wasn't for the business teams. It was for the accounting or the back office folks. Um, you know, the, the, the business teams, the broker, the asset manager didn't have a, you know, a platform or a command center. And that's what we wanted to build. And so, so how did two real estate guys get started, right? You're, you have the idea, you have, you have the inspiration. There's yeah. not a lot of precedent for PropTech. What do you do? We made every mistake you could possibly make. We just try to do it very quickly. Um, and so, we uh, first one, we didn't know that there was a difference between a designer and an engineer and we didn't know what a product person was because it wasn't really a product as a thing wasn't a, I don't think a big part of a team in 2009. Um, that kind of happened probably 11, 12 is where that got, you know, more at the forefront of, of a ped team. But um, so we had a, the last, the last deal that I did as a broker was an ad tech company. I'd become very friendly with the CEO and you know, taking him through the process of leasing space, I told him about the idea and he was like, dude, that is great because what you just took me through is so bad that I would even, I will even invest in it. And so um, I said, that's great. So we have the idea, we even have designs of pages. How do I build it? And so he put us in touch with a, with an outsourced firm in India. And so, you know, we spent basically two years trying to get a prototype built. Um, it should have taken three months, but you know, between, the language barrier and the time difference, we ended up communicating via PowerPoint every night at 3 a.m. Um, my last commission check that I had ever received, I thought was enough money to pay my portion of the development, uh, my rent for a few months, food, and an engagement ring. Uh, it wasn't enough for any of those things. So it lasted about a month and a half, two months. I got the engagement ring, and then my co-founder and his, and his girlfriend or now wife largely supported me off of like fruit and vegetables for three months. So it was like all the things that you, you hear or, or anticipate or that people would go through, we went through like the poverty, the hustle, like it's, it's all part of the story. Um, but, but to your question, once we got the prototype done, well, we started taking meetings and we had good relationships. So that wasn't that hard. The problem was 
the first customer we met with, um, with our, with our first product was, uh, Esso green. So biggest owner in New York city. And they said, great, we want to try it. And so at that point, at that, at that point in time, the product was really a marketing product. It was our, you know, we started up with this marketplace angle and we'll get to that later, but we've now come back to that. Uh, and they said, we want to try it. So they put two spaces on our platform that had not been leased in a while and they put it on, we distributed it to the market and they both leased quickly. And they said, Hey, we want to contract for everything. We were like, Holy crap. This is, we're not ready for this because if five people at the same time log in, this thing might explode. And so we basically use them as a carrot to say, Hey, we've got something real here. Um, we rent and raised a couple hundred thousand dollars from friends and family. Still didn't have a co-founder who was an engineer. I was at a deli having lunch with a friend and I said to my friend, we need to find a co-founder who can build this thing because what we have is a prototype. And at the table next to me, I heard a couple guys talking about what was clearly development. They had backpacks on, they were saying words like CSS, HT. I knew they were engineers. So I said to my buddy, when they get up, I'm going to follow them outside and ask him, do you guys know someone who can help us? That's a broken mentality. <laughs> it's also like weirdo mentality. So I go, I follow them outside. I'm like, Hey, are any of you guys engineers? They're like, we're all CTOs. We meet once a month and have lunch and talk about things. I said, great. So I have a desk that I rented next door up here with this thing that we're building. We have people signing up and it's not even like it's a prototype. I need help. So the one guy says, Hey, you know what? I'll come up and see it. No big deal. Comes upstairs. I show it to him. And he looks at the contracts that we're signing. He goes, wait a minute. So you guys are signing like six figure contracts and you I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, my company just raised $12 million. No one's paying us. We've been at it for four years. Let's talk again tonight. Long story short, uh, he quit his job three days later, become, became our CTO and co-founder. Um, and the rest is kind of history. Well, like, it's funny, had I not approached him at the deli, I don't know if we'd be here. Um, what so year is that? That was 2011. And what was it like? I'm curious. You said you raised an angel round. What was it like when you first went out to raise, you know, your first financing round? And the reason I ask is because to some extent, I imagine the feedback you got was some of the feedback we initially got, which is like real estate tech. What are you talking about? Like what, what's, what is real estate tech? It, like, isn't that a small category? Isn't that niche? It, are those some of the reflexive responses you encountered? It was way worse than that. <laughs> so, so the, I, Again, I didn't know any venture capitalists. I didn't know, really know anything about venture. And so I get an introduction to a guy who's a, a really well-known, apparently, venture or angel investor. And my friend who made the introduction said, John is a great guy. He's done a ton of successful deals. He'll give you real honest feedback as to, like, you know, the opportunity. So me and Ryan, we, like, prepped for weeks for this meeting. We meet this guy, go through the deck. His response was, and I quote, this is the worst idea I've ever heard. And I, I wouldn't invest in that space with a 10 foot pole. He goes, I wouldn't touch it. He goes, those people are never going to change. There's not enough public companies. And I said, and, and honestly for us, it was probably the most motivating meeting we've ever had because you know us, we're probably the most competitive people in the world. And so we saw it as like, okay, great. Let's go. Let's get after this. So um, I had, a, I had several meetings like that, several. And so, you know, the, the people who ended up leading the angel round was a close friend of mine named Brad and his company, their hedge fund had just gone through the painful process of finding new space. So it was like, 
it was so fresh in their mind that they got it um, and, you know, took a bet on us, which was, which was awesome. Yeah, I imagine anyone who's experienced the, any aspect of engaging with real estate and how analog and how archaic the whole process is intuitively gets it. But it was interesting, the disconnect between like how large, I mean, real estate is 13% of the U.S. economy, right? It's the largest industry in the United States. And it felt like for kind of, you know, 2010 to 2015, no one got there was this massive opportunity. Um, and so walk me through then, you guys raised a number of rounds. Uh, and I remember the, the round that actually caught my attention, which was, I think, as I've told you, the inspiration for how we constructed Fifthwell was the Blackstone round. Um, when was that and how did that come together? Yeah, so we raised, so I think we did a couple things really well early. Um, you know, there's one thing, I think we're, we're really fast learners and we're also, we also know what we don't know. And so we've always been trying to be humble about that and, um, you know, learn from folks who have done this stuff well. So when we first launched, the only other company that was out there was 42 floors. And if, so if you remember them, they're, they're, they're yeah. gone now, but, um, and they were like your traditional product team, like really good product guys. I mean, CS backgrounds. And we're raising money from unbelievably well-known venture guys in, in the Valley. And so we're like, okay, here comes these guys. We're, we weren't directly competing, but we're kind of in the same space. And at that point, there was, it, didn't, it almost didn't feel like it was big enough for the both of us. So we became kind of friends, but you know, we're watching each other. And so I go to California. I meet um, Jason, who is, the, who is the CEO. And he's like, hey, if it's helpful, I know this guy, Tom Byrne, who is the former president and COO of LoopNet who just been acquired by CoStar for a billion dollars. He said, do you want to meet him? I said, absolutely. So he's like, but he goes, but don't ask him for money because he will never invest in your business. He's not investing in any prop tech. Okay, fine. So I meet Tom for breakfast in, in San Francisco. We hit it off, have a great breakfast. I tell him about the business. He says instantaneously, I want to invest. I'm like, okay, this is huge for us. Again, we're, again we have nothing. We have a, a beta product, we're getting traction, but we know the problem that we're going to solve. And I think he really understood that. And so he's like, I want in, but let me help you develop a group of angels who can really help the business. And that was probably one of the most important moments in our company's history, because, you know, what you realize early in your, in, in your, in your journey in these companies is that your early investors, if you get the right ones who really are value add, it's invaluable. It's invaluable, right? So many people they optimize for price over that. And that is the wrong way to think about it. I would overpay for the help that I got early on every day, all day to this day. Um, and so, so we, we paid for it, right? We gave, we made, we had an unbelievable group of advisors on the, on the real estate side and on the venture side. So Tom basically helped us come up with a, about a, about a million two of, of angels that all had one experience building a, both a, a SaaS and a, a software and a marketplace business who understood um, the venture world really well in terms of how we position ourselves. Uh, we'd never even built a, a, a deck for a venture firm at that point. So we just, it was like, he was in the weeds with us, like building board decks. I'll never forget our first series A meeting. You're going to love this. We send our finances to Tom to look at. And he says, wait, guys, where's the slide, the financial slide, and what, what's your ARR? And we go, what the hell is ARR? <laughs> we had no, so two weeks before the, our first Series A meeting, we had to literally figure out what our ARR was. We didn't know what that was. 
Uh, and so he, um, he said, listen, you guys spending your time trying to educate venture firms on the size of the market is a waste of money. Let's pick the firms that we know know the space and meet with them. And so Trinity Ventures, Mill Fenton, who's the founder, you know, is an iconic guy in the Valley, but also was probably the, the best um, prop tech, even though it wasn't a word back then, investor in, that I had known of, right? He did LoopNet's deal from their Series A through IPO. He had done a ton of other res residential deals. And so we knew that they'd be a great partner for us. That was our first meeting. Uh, within an hour of going to that meeting, which Tom came with us, they said, we want the deal. So go meet other folks. We want it. Um, so we met with, well, I think we, we only met with five, five venture firms for our Series A, you know, where most folks tell you, if you go to Y Combinator, we was 50. We thought it was a terrible strategy and a waste of time. So we met with, with Trinity. They did our Series A. Uh, right after that, Blackstone basically puts out an RFP and says, okay, there's two companies that are doing this right now. One is VTS, one is Hightower. And, you know, you know, we were effectively a leasing and asset management platform. So you track all your leasing, your customers. Um, it can give you a real view of what's happening across your whole portfolio. And how, so many they, hey, Nick, how many customers do you have at this point? How many customers? Uh, we probably have, it's a good question. This is, this, now we're in 2015. Right. So we did our series A in 2014. And so Blackstone's round was technically a series A1 because it was right after our A. So might have, been, might have been eight months after. So we probably had, you know, a hundred customers, but I mean, people were paying us nothing. It was, it was borderline free at that point. Um, one, because we were so early and two, because it was, we were in a pretty competitive market. We had a really strong competitor and they were a fantastic team, great product. And they put us head to head and they said, listen, you don't really have a choice. We're, given our scale, we're going to pick one of you to use. And whatever one we choose, we're making an investment. So we're like, okay, we're in. Like, yeah, that's the, the validation that would have given us was so big to everybody um, that, of course, you're going to say yes to that, right? So to have, you know, John. Yeah. I'm just curious on that, on that RFP. Did they use the word? Uh, like kingmaker, like, hey, we can be a kingmaker. We can make your business. Or was that implicit? I'm sure, I'm sure they used kingmaker. I, I'm sure they used every word you could it think was of obvious. right there. That, that yeah. They yeah. Game changer. So, and everybody knew it. Yeah. And so they put us through a six-month grueling process where they rolled out both systems head-to-head -head on every level and at the end said, okay, BTS, you're a platform making an investment and so they put in i think our, our claim to fame is that it's probably blackstone's smallest investment in history they put in 3.3 million dollars um uh, now it's, it might be the biggest you know roi in history for them you know and it, it, it probably will be uh by the numbers right or by the but from in terms of multiple but but it was they took it very seriously right like you know i, I was able to meet with john for the first time several times about it and their whole asset management team. It was just very clear that they were taking this technology thing really seriously and they saw the opportunity, um, which, you know, it sounds like when you heard that, you probably thought the same thing. Okay, there's something really big here. If these guys are taking it seriously, so should I, which is was, pretty awesome. That was exactly it. Like literally, I remember I was, I had just sold my company, uh, the data analytics company I was running and I was interviewing at Venture Funds and I kept walking into them and they were like, well, what's a, you know, this is going to get a job at a venture fund, like a generalist fund. They were like, what's a good idea you have? And I was like, real estate tech. Like the category's massive, super under-technologized space. And they'd be like, well, 
real estate tech, what does that even mean? Like, what, what, like, like, what would you, what, what tech would you use for a real estate company? And I was like, that just kind of proves my point. Um, but regardless, I kept kind of having this thesis. And then I remember I, I was reading through the paper and I saw like Blackstone invest in BTS and I'd heard about your company, obviously. And then the next thing I saw was like John Gray, like talking about BTS. And I was like, holy, this is a kingmaker, right? Like this, this decision basically has anointed this company, the heir apparent to take this huge category. It was obvious to me that that was a huge category because I actually worked at Blackstone and I worked at Goldman. I worked in the real estate industry. I could empathize with like how acute that pain point was. And that was the genesis. I was like, actually, what if I raised a venture fund from these groups like Blackstone and we can do this many times over? But it was literally the VTS deal that was the inspiration for us, but also what we told other corporates. We were like, oh, you don't understand what we mean when we say Kingmaker? Here, look at this article. If you don't get it now, you won't get it. Like, this is a Kingmaker deal. This is how the real estate industry works. People yeah. look sideways, they see what their peers are doing, they see what Blackstone's doing, and they do the same thing. Um, so what was it like post-Blackstone? Well, so, you know, our, it's funny. When they first called us about this, and by the way, we had tried to pitch them a couple times. They just weren't having it. Um, and they were actually really tough conversations because we were trying to convince them of this stuff. And they're like, yeah, we don't need it. And then, and then like something clicked at some point internally there. And they're like, okay, there's something bigger here that we should be paying attention to. Um, and they were right. But so I think for us, we, we had some initial concerns that while it would be, I think, a kingmaker scenario uh, or at least validate us in a big way, that there might be some concern from other owners that, you know, Blackstone, who's the largest, is now going to have an equity stake in this business. So we actually made on our whiteboard in our crappy little office a kind of pros and cons list. Um, and the pros just outweighed the cons. And so once it happened, the journal announced it. It was a big thing. Um, we only really got like five phone calls from, from customers. And, and all they wanted to know from us was like, is Blackstone going to see my data? We're like, of course not. Like, because to your point, corporate investing did not exist in our space. I'm like, look at any other company you use. I promise you there's 30 corporate entities that are investor in that business. And, so and, it was, by, and by the way, the other thing that's really interesting is when that deal happened, I remember this is like, this is the environment that we entered fundraising into. Yeah. There was like this little kind of amateurish cottage industry of like real estate family offices that were dabbling in, in venture and like these corporate venture funds. But, and we probably don't want to say the names of the firms that, that had this mentality, but there was definitely this, this pervasive like 1990s corporate venture mentality, which is like, I'm going to invest in a company to get its data, to get a right to buy the company, to stop my, pet, my competitors from investing in it or using it or whatever it was. And I was like, like in every other industry that died like two decades ago, like what are you doing? That's not how you get access to companies like BTS. They won't do that. They, they need independence. They want to take an industry. Did you encounter that a lot, that friction, that kind of like just old school corporate, you know, when we're in bed with you, we own you kind of mentality. I'm sure you rejected it, but did you, did you encounter yeah. it? So I think we encountered it with, with the kind of mom and pops who wanted to invest, right? So yeah. up until that point, we had, say, we had said no to every real estate specific investor. Um, and there weren't a lot of them, right? But 
it's not that we had said no to them, we just weren't going after them. Where Hightower took the opposite approach. So they were, what was interesting about them is they were, they were really successful in getting a couple owners to actually invest. And we thought that, okay, if they're doing it successfully, you know, it might not be, the optics aren't as bad as they're are in our head about Blackstone, right? Because we can always point to that. And so I would say some of the early mom and pops that we did talk to, for sure, wanted all this stuff. And we're like, guys, you know, we, have, we now have a venture investor who's telling us that this is not market. Like, we don't, we don't need your money, to be honest. And so I think when you, got, when you all created Fifth Wall, that was a big moment for everybody because it created structure around this chaos that was starting to happen around the excitement in the space. Um, and I think it also, one, it, it, clearly you guys literally validated the market from a venture perspective, which we should all be thankful for. But two, you also educated the owners who wanted to get into the space about how this stuff should work which frees up everybody, right? And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I think, well, you know, well, I, well, you know, I, I love when people say VTFs is maybe the pioneer of prop tech. You guys are the pioneer on the venture side, right? Like there is no real kind of true venture model for the space. So, you know, it all kind of started to come together in 2014, 15, 16. Yeah. Um, which is when you guys came in. Yeah, and, and, and our approach was, and by the way, it was hard, probably the same way when you guys worked with corporates, like they came in kicking and screaming in the first fund. They were like, wait, you're gonna raise from a consortium of real estate owners? Well, what's my net? And I was like, that's not the point. That is not the point. <laughs> like, you don't win by getting access to a worse company and like blocking out your competitors from it. That's losing. Like you win, but you lose. And did you so- have, did, you have, did you have LPs who would say, hey, we'll invest, but you cannot take money from these guys? Totally, totally. And I was like- that's so crazy. And, and what was crazy is that, you know, the real estate industry, it's like an industry where everyone asks for special terms, right? That's just how the industry is hardwired. Like everyone's like, well, if I'm investing, you should pay me to invest or you can't have these, you know, I want to first look at this thing. And so we probably in our first fund, which was 212 million, we probably turned down 100 to 200 million of real estate corporate money. That was some flavor of like what, what I feel like corporate venture looked like in the 1990s. They wanted to own Fifth Wall. They wanted to sit on our investment committee. They wanted to have a right to buy companies like BTS. And so we had to say no to all of it. And, and to you know, pay credit to BTS, that was the example. It was like, look at this case study. Look at what happened here. We're like, and when we actually analyzed case study, we, when we analyzed BTS and we made our investment. I remember we were like, we analyzed the decisions of all the corporates that were in our fund. And they were telling us like, yeah, we're gonna roll out BTS across the portfolio. They're going to win. And I remember, I, I think we called you up and we told you as much as we thought was appropriate without showing our hand too much. And I was like, look, we really think we can help you, you know, but it was already pre-wired. And we said like, look, this company is going to take a massive space. This is how big it is. There's no one else in it. There's a handful of legacy players. They're going to become a multi-billion dollar company. And it was wealth. You became a multi-billion or a billion dollar company, what? Uh, three and a half years later. You yeah. became a billion dollar company last year, right? Yeah, correct. And how did that go for VTS as you went from kind of having done the Blackstone deal to like these larger, more institutional rounds of venture capital? Did you see a psychological change in the VCs that they recognized actually now prop tech, real estate tech, 
is big and these guys are one of the winners. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think once, well, I think you guys, again, were a part of that without even maybe knowing it, right? Because they all saw this venture folks are competitive just like everybody else, right? They want this, they want the LPs dollars you're getting in their funds, right? right. So when they see dollars not going in their fund, but in another one, and it's this new vertical, you know, they're all their antennas start to go up and you're like, okay, there's something here. And then they talk to all their friends who are in real estate because everybody has friends in real estate and they say, oh yeah, there's so many awesome companies now. It's just, you know, the, the, the snowball starts to roll. Um, so I think for us, um, it wasn't like there was this in 2016 was when we did our, we did it when you guys came in, right? We did our series C. C. Yeah. C. Um, it was what hadn't really happened yet. Um, our series B was a year and a half before with open view, who was just a really good enterprise B2B vertical software investor. And we loved that because we didn't have that. We didn't have someone who really understood the B2B world, how to scale vertically. And so they helped us a lot with thinking through how to run an efficient business, our strategy from a sales perspective. Um, and so they, they specifically solved that problem for us, which was, Hey, we're a great investor and we're really smart, but our, look, look at the profile of our companies. We're going to show you how to be a great vertical SaaS business. And we love that. So we felt like we knew enough about real estate and had good, good investors there. Uh, even on the angel side, we needed someone to help us be a great software or at least create the path to getting there. They did that. Right. And then as we thought about scale, uh, insight called us, we weren't raising money. Uh, this is kind of an interesting story, right? So we weren't raising money. We well, were very, so this is 16. This is the series, the series C. Yep. So we weren't raising money. I get a call from, and I got, I was getting calls from venture guys all the time to come meet with us. That's, that's what they do, right? They cold call you. We want to come see you. And somehow or another insight venture partners got on my calendar. I don't know how, I don't remember how, um, there was a young guy there who's, who was a really smart, um, you know, I respect a good cold car cause I did it my whole life. So he got in the door, my assistant's like, Hey, insights coming. And I think the founder of the firm's coming in. I look him up and I'm like, Holy shit. Jeff Horing is probably one of the most, the smartest, most successful venture guys in the world. I'm in like a stained t-shirt and a backwards hat. I run to like the gap or something, get a button down. He comes in and I didn't know that he was very close to the OpenView guys. So Scott, the founder of OpenView, um, worked for Jeff for a long time. And, and Jeff, you know, thinks that Scott's one of the smartest guys on the planet and said, listen, I know the space. I didn't know that Insight had owned Argus. So he knew way more than I ever thought he would know. And within an hour, he goes, listen, you're in a competitive, you're in a competitive environment. We think you guys are the winning horse. We think the TAM is big. I want to give you $50 million. And I'm like, like literally just like that. I'm like, wait, you just got here like five minutes ago. What? <laughs> so, so long story short, we did a deal really quickly. Um, we knew that it would send another signal to the market that, that, that a, a, a fund like Insight, which as you know, is a huge fund, you know, they're, they're like the ultimate scale investor would send kind of a shot over the bow about like our opportunity. Um, and that's where I think like, as you get to series A, B, C, D, you know, you, you, you learn the difference between a series B company and a series C company. Cause there's, there is material differences across the whole journey and series C. Now it's like a, you're, you're supposed to be in the just add water phase where you're supposed to have the foundation there. And if it's not there, you better figure it out quickly because that's the expectation. Now it's 2016. You guys have continued to grow. 
And I think in, to some extent, it's been just like you're absorbing the market that, that seemed incumbent for you to take since then. But today, um, there's a couple new products that I think are additive and synergistic with what you've already built. Can you just walk through the genesis of both the, the data product and the marketplace product and just how they fit into the ecosystem you envision for VTS? Yeah, so if you looked at our Series A investor deck from 2013, it has the same infographic on it, which is VTS's core leasing platform is kind of the, the, the engine, right? So we always said, once we get enough market share, we're gonna have the data to do the, the next two parts of our vision. Uh, one is, you know, a subset of our data is inventory, right? So to be the first, first party marketplace, meaning the data comes right from the owners and the agents. There's no survey data in it. Um, and so, you know, we, we have been thinking about it for eight years. Uh, we just launched that two months ago. By the numbers, it's, it's the fastest growing prop tech product ever by a landslide. Um, and so that's now live in six markets. Uh, and it's, it's the most modern way for someone to market their space online. A year ago, I would have never called it remote leasing platform, but that's kind of what it is. It's a way for someone to engage with a piece of space from their phone or their home. And the best part is that it's completely built into VTS's core leasing platform. So what that means is as an owner, the system starts to tell you when it's time to market a piece of space based on market demand and when that space or that lease is expiring. So you get an alert saying, hey, this space is rolling in 18 months. Do you want to market it? A form pops up, it fills out everything automatically. You click go, our team comes and films your space for free. We put it on the market, it's automatic. Um, and, and, that typically, gets and typically, Nick, these, these are the hardest market spaces, right? These kind of the spaces that you're putting out there because as a major owner, it's hard to focus on that kind of granularity. Right. hundred percent. People are busy. Right. So like, you know, I think what we're seeing now is even in the, in its, in its infancy, which it really is, you know, we're, we're saving people five weeks just in the go to market process to get a space online. Yeah. Right? Cause you don't wait till some meeting where someone realizes versus a system telling you this space, it's time to go. We got you. And so it puts it online for the tenant rep community to really tour and view from wherever they are, send it to their customers in a really secure way. And as an owner, all the interactions, whether that person wants to tour it in person or they just inquire about it, that all shows up in VTS's core system. So what's cool about that is, you know, for any software or workflow product, the worst part for any user is just, is data entry, right? No one likes to use Salesforce and listen, people don't probably love entering information into VTS, right? No one likes to report. But the minute leads start showing up by themselves in that system, your whole view of it changes, right? And that's now where we are, right? Deals are showing up in your deal system that you didn't put there, right? It's an actual tenant rep broker saying, I have a tenant who wants to see this space and you see it in your pipeline. It's pushed to you. And, and how, much, how much of a tailwind has, obviously I'm sure when you're building it, you didn't predict a pandemic, uh, the inability to lease space. How much of a tailwind has COVID and where we are right now been to that product? You know, it's, it's been, I think it's been a tailwind for us for a couple reasons. I think one, um, what it's done is, is forced people to recognize that the way you used to do things just doesn't work, right? Because this is not a, this is not a short-term revolution. This is a long-term evolution, right? So COVID at some point will go away, 
the changes that are happening in our market right now are not going to go away, right? A real world example of that would be right now, the number of tenants who are in the market looking for space, net new customers, is down 50% right now than this time last year. There's no tenant in the world who is going to say, at least this year and probably not next, I really want to go and tour like 35 spaces in person to narrow down my search. It's right. not going to happen. It should have never happened in the first place, by the way. But we just didn't have a platform to do that. So what they're going to say is, every single space you show me better be on VTS's marketplace because I know I'm going to tour it. I'm going to see all the data. I know it's accurate because it's coming from the owners themselves. And from there, we can, we can, we can collaborate with ownership and the broker right in the system. And then when we narrow it down, let's see our top five in person. I'll have enough information to make that decision, right? So I think it's been an accelerant. Um, and so again, it's, it's just, it's, it's been a forcing function for folks to figure out, okay, my old tricks don't work. We've lived in a world where everything was done in person. There was virtually no ROI needed because we knew we were going to get deals done. And so um, it's changing everybody's mindset. And so now data, where yeah. does data fit in? Yeah, so the, the, the third leg of our stool, so again, it, the, the, three, the three parts of the infographic was our core leasing platform, which is the engine, and then it was a marketplace, and then it was a market data product. Um, so we, we've been in beta with that for about 18 months, um, kind of quietly improving it. Uh, COVID was, has also been a tailwind for that because people have questions, right? They want to know a couple things. One, they want to know, when are we going to hit rock bottom? Right. And so, so this return to office or return, the market returning, how is COVID impacting that week by week? And two, they want to know, are the same kinds of tenants in the market now that we're in the market in January? Right. So there's, and there's a million other questions. Um, as far as I know, we're the only ones with those answers. So um, we've kind of doubled down on that product over the past four months to get it to market as quickly as we could for our customers. Cause they really need help right now. And so we'll be launching that in September. It will redefine the way that we look at market data, right? It's just, it's data that has not existed before. Um, we've been doing monthly executive meetings, going through the data with the top owners in the world for the past three months. People are losing their minds because you now have real answers that you didn't have before. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm as, as excited about that as I am for Marketplace, which is now just going live. But, you know, the, the flywheel of BTS, that ecosystem, as you called it, you know, for the first time ever is real, right? I've been talking about it for eight years, um, and now it's a real thing, which is so much fun. So, so 2020 represents the, the completion, right, of this ecosystem. It's all synergistic with one another. Just paint a picture for me. Like, I'm curious to get your perspective. I think we've already talked for a while now. But just two things about the future of BTS. Like what does BTS look like over the next five years and how does it evolve and how does it grow and what's your vision for it? And then how does that tie in with broadly prop tech and real estate tech and this, the, the capital markets and the venture and the innovation ecosystem there? How do you see those two things evolving? Yeah. So I think for us, listen, our, I think the next even 12 to 24 months, our business starts to look very different, right? Um, with these three parts of the ecosystem being live, the amount of information we're going to have access to is going to change the way we buy, lease, and sell buildings, right? It's a totally new data set. And having a marketplace on top of that, that's going to have market information in it and be living within the same ecosystem or platform owners and brokers use to manage their deal. It's just, 
it's going to look, look a lot more like Bloomberg than it does, you know, a CRM, if you will, um, which is what our space has wanted for a long time, right? They've deserved much better than they have. So that's, that's really important. Um, so I think for us, you'll start to see that, that lens or that view of our platform become very, very real. Um, and it's going to change a lot of things. Uh, I think what, what the, that's impact, its impact on PropTech is significant because I do believe that any success any company has in our space is good for everybody else, right? Everyone can draft off that. And with any modern tech company, a couple things are true. You've got modern architecture, uh, open APIs, right? So people can start to build platforms and technology on top of things like us, which we want to have happen. We want to be a platform, right? So our hope is that the success we have, we have or continue to have is going to help other companies grow their business because this is, as you said, a humongous space. We just haven't acted like it. Um, and so there's plenty of room for lots of companies. And you know, our goal is to, is to one, try to help other companies grow because we think that helps us too. And then obviously we were going to have a pretty large M&A strategy going forward too. So um, I'd love to not build everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would the, be nice. way, the way I've, I've conceptualized it and the way, you know, as, as we look at BTS, it's like the, it's the OS, it's the operating system of leasing, right? The commercial leasing activity. And in so being, it creates therefrom like lots of data, like enormous amounts of data. That data creates an efficiency and a transparency around the leasing process. But there's so many facets to the leasing process, site selection, design of space, especially today, right? When companies are considering what virtualization means for their business, there's so much complexity to it that the ability of third party um, companies and third party startups to actually plug into what you're building and to some extent what you've already built is pretty profound. And what that does at a capital markets level to this huge driver of the American economy, which is commercial leasing activity, is pretty profound. Like it, we could probably spend another hour just talking about the implications of just that. But you're right. It's like a Bloomberg, but it's even it's even more complete than a Bloomberg in the sense that you can actually execute trades, right? You can execute right. trades and you can build more complex systems around engaging with like space, right? Where commerce happens. It's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, this is, it's funny. We, we're, people often forget how big this market is um, because there's yeah, only you know. a few large, there's only a few large software companies. So they think, oh, it's not, can't be that big. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't be, don't let that illusion dissuade you yeah. because it's a huge market. Yeah. I always say that it's like the U S economy happens indoors. It happens right. indoors That's and right. it happens in space that typically people are paying for. And if you don't appreciate that, you can't get how big the real estate industry is. So, um, and how big this opportunity around prop tech, um, which almost feels like a, like a misnomer kind of anachronistic now, because you know, what's happening in, in real estate tech, it's colliding with so many other spaces and, and just interesting and, and for us at least, and I'm sure for you, exciting ways. So Nick, um, this has been awesome. I feel like we, uh, we unpacked the history of PropTech, uh, BTS, and Fifth Wall in about 45 minutes. Thanks for uh, helping this space catch up to everybody else. It's about time. So yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Ahead for sure. All right. Stay safe. See you next. Thanks, bud. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. 
To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.